it can take quite a few years to become addicted to it. But what happens is when you do learn that there is an unpleasant feeling when one drink wears off and you need another dose to relieve that feeling, at that point, you're going to find it incredibly hard to moderate or to cut down or to do anything other than quit entirely. Because as I say, every drink gives the desire for the next one. And for me, that's where the line is crossed. Because anyone who ever drank alcohol had a withdrawal from it. You know, no matter how mild or occasional a drinker, their brain will adjust to that alcohol. And when it wears off, there'll be a a feeling of anxiety. Now, it might be so minor that it's almost imperceptible, but it is there. But where we start to have problems is when either consciously or subconsciously, we notice that feeling and we know that we need another drink to get rid of it. And as I say, when you've learned that, it's learnt behaviour and what's learnt cannot be unlearned. When you learn that, you're constantly then having to fight a battle to resist having the next drink. Welcome to the Tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, Tribe Leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. If you're a first-time listener, then a big welcome to you. Wherever you are on your sober journey, just subscribe and get every weekly episode delivered to your phone. Here at Tribe Sober, we enable people to change their relationship with alcohol and then go on to thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last five years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. Each week, we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. Here's a lady from one of our WhatsApp groups. Happy Friday, everybody. Um, Yeah, so it's been not a week quite yet. Um, Tomorrow will be a week. Um, And one of my biggest wins this week was uh, my dad was hospitalised. And whenever something like that happens, my go-to thing is like, eek, I need to go and uh, pour myself a glass of wine. And then it ends up being like three, four, sometimes five. Um, Yeah, so this week I didn't do that. I was like, oh, eep. And I had kombucha, which is quite, um, I can't work out whether it's disgusting or delicious. (laughs) um yeah and then I even um poured my husband a glass of wine um and gave it to him while I drank my kombucha um yeah but what I have realized is that um um I in the past have pretty much used wine as an anti-anxiety 
um, particularly when something massive hits me in the face. But um, it doesn't help at all because it just makes my anxiety worse the next day and also unable to plan and deal with what I have to deal with. You can't run away from someone being in hospital or um, whatever else happens. So yeah, it's just made me a lot calmer and able to kind of just see things in perspective as well. So if you want to join our community and get a bit of support, just go to tribesober.com and click on join our tribe. Now this week, my guest is William Porter. William is the author of Alcohol Explained. He's a lawyer and previously served in Iraq as a member of the Parachute Regiment. He started drinking and smoking back at the tender age of just 14. So let's have a listen to his story. So my day job, I'm actually a lawyer, a solicitor, and I um, work in insurance, which is... (laughs) perhaps the most boring thing you can possibly imagine, spending all day reading insurance contracts. Prior to that, I was in the military for a few years. I served in the parachute regiment and out in Iraq. And obviously, I've written a few books. So the the most well-known of them being Alcohol Explained and Alcohol Explained 2. At the moment, I live in London. I've got a wife and two children of eight and ten. Two books about alcohol. I've read them both. So it's alcohol explained, isn't it? And alcohol explained too. What what grabbed you? Why why did you become so interested in this topic that you you've written two books about it? So um, I suppose my interest is so, so I started drinking and smoking when I was about fourteen, um, which depending on who you speak to, either seems sort of perfectly normal or very young. Um, but I think over here in the UK, sort of fourteen, fifteen is about the age a lot of people start or started drinking and smoking certainly back in the you know the, the 90s um and i quit smoking so so what i did in my late teens i came across alan carr so obviously alan carr wrote a book he developed his not stop smoking method of um back in the 1980s and i read that to try and quit smoking um, and I was really taken by it because he introduced, so it was almost to me a whole new way of looking at smoking and addiction generally, just a really pragmatic common sense approach that just stripped it down to what it is you're actually dealing with. Um, and I really liked his approach and I ended up reading virtually everything he'd ever written. So I stopped smoking, but I can, in fact, I, I smoked for quite a few years after that. I kept coming back to it. So I was kind of reading and, and sort of thinking about what I was doing. Um, so I eventually stopped smoking, but I continued drinking and my drinking became heavier and heavier. Um, and then it kind of as it does with most people, it increased and increased and it became increasingly a problem. Um, And eventually I quit back in, I think, 14, I think, yeah, 2014. And I suppose I'd I'd, I'd never really set out to write a book. I'd just taken, I suppose, an Alan Carr-esque approach of being sort of inquisitive and really trying to work out what was going on um, and just applied it to drinking Um, And I know Alan Carr wrote a book about drinking, which I read, but a lot of what he wrote didn't really ring true for me, if you like. 
Um, so I ended up kind of developing my own slightly different view of drinking and problem drinking and alcohol dependency. Um, and that is essentially what ended up being the two books on, on alcohol, Alcohol Explained and Alcohol Explained too. Awesome. So your your approach to stopping was really to educate yourself more and delve into the science. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was almost a question of, of, of seeing what was happening. I mean, delving into the science, but also noticing to myself what was happening as well. Because, I, I mean, I, I read Alan Carr's autobiography um, and he I don't think he ever particularly had a problem with alcohol. And um, in his autobiography, he said he didn't want to write the book. He didn't feel equipped to write a book about drinking. He was trying to get someone else to do it, um, trying to get, you know, someone to write it. And he, he put his name to it. Um, and so there were a few things he said about, I, I mean, I really like Alan Carr. I don't like to criticise him at all. I think he was an absolute genius, but I don't think he quite got it when it came to drinking. Um, and there were a few things he said about drinking that at the time didn't quite ring true. For example, he says that there's no physical withdrawal for alcohol, which I personally didn't feel that was correct because what I noticed was when one drink was starting to wear off or when I was very hungover, there was like an anxious, unpleasant feeling. Um, and he also said that the reason why when we start drinking in a particular session, it's very hard to stop was because we get dehydrated. So we get thirsty and want to drink more. And, and again, for me, that didn't really ring true because it, I was never drinking because I was thirsty. So it was so, so as I say, there were a few things that didn't quite ring true for me there. Yeah, well, I think it was because, as you say, I don't think he had a hectic drinking problem. And it so that's why it, it didn't quite resonate as it should have done. Because the smoking, I, I think he did have a... He did give up smoking quite heavily, didn't he? Yeah, I think so, he smoked something ridiculous, like 100 or day or something <laughs> for like 30-odd years. So he really? <laughs> certainly, had, certainly had experience of smoking. Yeah, well, I think people's experience really shines through when they're, they're writing these kind of books. Yeah, I think that's my sort of feeling for it. And I, I sort of sometimes liken it to trying to write, trying to write a travel guide. Um, and if, you know, trying to write a, a, a book on an addiction you've not suffered from, mm. it's like trying to write a travel guide for a country you haven't visited. It's just... Yeah, that's it, a great analogy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I agree. Let, let me ask you some sciencey questions now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my personal experience, I spent 10 years just trying to moderate my drinking because I just couldn't bear the thought of stopping it completely. I, I couldn't imagine what life would be like without alcohol, apart from it being a very dull and grey place. And I kept trying and I tried really hard because I'm, I'm quite a strong person. <laughs> I usually achieve what I want to. And I used to... Um, I, I, you know, looked up the units, 14 units a week. I had a little diary. I used to mark how many units I'd had, you know, that night. And I tried so hard. And I could manage it for maybe three weeks, sticking to the weekly units. And then the wheels would come off, you know, and I'd drink till I blacked out. And then I'd just feel so miserable. And my self-esteem would be on the floor. And then I'd start again. And it was a really difficult time. And I just wanted to ask you what your kind of explanation would be for, for that, because I think it's very common. You know, absolutely is. There's a few points to mention there. I think that a good a place to start as any is the actual physiological effect alcohol has on us. 
So alcohol itself as a chemical is a sedative, it's a depressant. And when I use the word depressant, I'm using it in its chemical sense as something that depresses or inhibits nerve activity. Um, and I think most people kind of relate to that and understand that. But where things start to get a bit more interesting is when we look at how the brain works. Because the human brain creates and excretes a huge array of chemicals, drugs and hormones, some of which most people will have heard of, like adrenaline and cortisol and endorphins and dopamine. But really, the list of chemicals and drugs and hormones that the brain creates and excretes we don't we as humans don't even fully have a complete list of it at the moment let alone do we understand how they all work together because it's a very delicate balance but what we do know is the brain works by way of something called homeostasis which is basically just a word for a, a, a balance it's this very very complicated and intricate chemical balance now the problem is when we introduce alcohol the brain reacts to it and it does it in, in lots and lots of different and very complicated chemical reactions in different ways, biological, physical, all the rest of it. But what it amounts to is it becomes hypersensitive so it can work while under the sedating effects of the alcohol. Now, of course, over time, the brain becomes increasingly proficient at being able to do this. Um, with the result that we can drink more. And that's essentially what tolerance is. It just means that our brain is able to become increasingly oversensitive so that it can work under the sedating effects of the alcohol. Now, the problem comes in when the alcohol starts to wear off because when it wears off, that oversensitization period remains. And it's not a nice feeling. We experience it as, as sort of nervousness and possibly depression and anxiety. And that's where the term anxiety comes from, that colloquial term about feeling nervous after you've been drinking. It's actually got a chemical basis. Um, the simplest way of thinking about it is for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So for whatever sedating effect you get from alcohol, when it wears off, there's a corresponding feeling of anxiety. For that reason, trying to moderate is inherently difficult because when one drink wears off, after 15, 20 minutes or so, as the alcohol starts to wear off, there's a feeling of anxiety left there, which needs another drink to get rid of it. So as one drink wears off, it creates the desire for the next one. So that makes moderation you're always on an uphill struggle and, and as I mentioned in the book you know if, if you're coming to say so say you're out for the evening with some friends and you decide you like the feeling one drink has on you or two drinks or whatever you know people often have a magic number you know I like two or three drinks but five or six is getting a bit ridiculous but the problem is the effect doesn't last it wears off and it doesn't wear off leaving you as you felt before it leaves you with an unpleasant feeling that creates a desire for the next drink. And that's why, it, like, for example, in your case, what people find with moderation is it's sustainable in the short term, but you have to put in an awful lot of willpower and effort. And it doesn't take much, as you said, for the wheels to fall off and for the whole thing to come crashing down. Because the natural reaction is not to sit there and feel uncomfortable and nervous. It's to feel comfortable and relaxed. And to do that, we need to keep the alcohol going down our throats. Um, so there's that aspect. I think the other problem with moderation is, and, and, and this again is sort of a physiological point. If, for example, you're drinking two bottles of wine a night, 
your brain is used to becoming oversensitized to counter the alcohol in two bottles of wine. Now, if you're doing that every night for, you know, a month, six months, a year, whatever, your brain is in that habit. So that first glass of wine sends the message to your brain two bottles of wine's worth of alcohol is incoming and it will be incoming over the next two or three hours or whatever. So your brain's getting oversensitized to that over that period of time. So if you suddenly decide on whatever day, wow, two bottles of wine is far too much, I'm just going to have a glass tonight, that first glass just sets your brain off um, and there's no more alcohol coming in. So actually you feel worse <laughs> than if you hadn't drunk at all. Um, and, and that's why it's so incredibly difficult. I mean, th there's other reasons as well, um, which brings us more onto sort of the psychological side of things. Um, but of course, addiction isn't just the physiological. It's not just the withdrawal. It's also the craving. The craving side of it is huge for people. Now, people often think that cravings are just, you know, almost like a, a meteor falling from the sky. There's nothing you can do about it. It just hits you and you have to suffer it. But of course, that's not the case. A craving is a psychological thought process. And what usually happens is the thought of an alcoholic drink enters our mind. And what we do with that thought is then start, one, fantasizing about it. So we sit there thinking, oh, wouldn't it be the most perfect thing in the world if I had that glass of wine or that beer or whatever? Um, and secondly, we start torturing ourselves with the possibility of having it. And that's when we're there saying to ourselves, you know what, I could just stop tomorrow, I could just have one, it'll be fine on this occasion, I can make it work. So we start telling ourselves all those lives to make it possible. And what we're really doing is torturing ourselves over it. Now, what I realised is, when you quit completely 100%, you're not drinking, okay? So if you go to, so for example, I think about alcohol virtually I don't know 80% of my waking hour because of what I do but I never actually entertain the possibility of having a drink so I mean not that I'm doing much at the moment because we're isolating at the moment but you know I went out for work drinks the other day um, and I didn't for a moment think should I shouldn't I have a drink um, and because of that I wasn't craving it because craving is entertaining the possibility and fantasizing about it now if you know full well you're not going to have it most of the time you can greatly negate that craving process because your mindset isn't, oh, should I have that beer? Should I have that glass of wine? It's, well, I'm not having that, so I'll have a soft drink and you quickly move on. That's another reason why moderation is so inherently difficult yeah. because when you quit, you don't drink. As long as you're going with the right mindset, you don't drink and that's it. So someone offers you a drink, it's no, and you just move on to the next thing and that's it. But when you're moderating, it's hanging over you as a possibility. So you're constantly kind of thinking about it and should I, shouldn't I? You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. And it's, it's exhausting, isn't it? I mean, I was so much better when I just stopped completely because, I, I mean, it was tough. You know, it took mm. work and willpower, et cetera, and a, a new mindset for a few min a few months, you know, and then, then I was done. And, you know, mm. like you, I just don't entertain the, the possibility of having a drink anymore. And I love the, the freedom that it's given me. You know, it's a huge relief that I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to think about these issues anymore so uh, for me and for a lot of people you know in our community they uh, 
you know, they come along and they say, oh, I want to moderate. And, you know, we, we gradually taught them out of entertaining that idea. <laughs> yeah. Because I do believe that once your drinking's crossed a line, I mean, in my case, it was averaging uh, one bottle of wine a night, but that went on for decades, you know. Mm. So your, your brain changes, doesn't it? And yeah, as absolutely. you say, I, I love your description of you have one glass and your brain's thinking, oh, we're having a bottle tonight. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be coming <laughs> yeah. down soon. <laughs> so, yeah, I think once you've crossed a line, there's there's no going back, really. Just ditch the stuff and, yeah. you know, and think, I think about that, something more interesting. Yeah, I think that's the problem because with, with alcohol, because we consume it by drinking it, it takes a long time to become addicted to it because addiction is really every drug that's addictive when it wears off it leaves an unpleasant feeling a withdrawal that needs another dose of the drug to um to relieve that withdrawal and and that's the pleasure in any drug you take it's relieving that withdrawal and that, and and that was basically what Alan Carr was talking about back when he discovered the his method back in the 1980s but with alcohol it can go on for quite a few years before you learn that because the, the effect of a drug is felt when it enters our bloodstream now there's four ways you can get a drug into your bloodstream you can inject it directly in so it's almost immediate you can um, inhale it so it goes into your lungs and then from there into the bloodstream so again it takes about a second or so from inhaling something from it to hit your bloodstream for you to feel the effect of it you can snort it, and again, it takes about a second or so for it to hit your bloodstream, or you can drink it. Now, with drinking, it's massively longer. It's about 20 minutes because it has to go into your stomach, into the small intestine before it's absorbed. So for that reason, it can take quite a few years to become addicted to it. But what happens is when you do learn that there is an unpleasant feeling when one drink wears off and you need another dose to relieve that feeling, at that point, you're going to find it incredibly hard to moderate or to cut down or to do anything other than quit entirely because, as I say, every drink gives the desire for the next one. And for me, that's where the line is crossed because anyone who ever drank alcohol had a withdrawal from it. You know, no matter how mild or occasional a drinker, their brain will adjust to that alcohol. And when it wears off, there'll be a, a feeling of anxiety. Now, it might be so minor that it's almost imperceptible, but it is there. But where we start to have problems is when either consciously or subconsciously, we notice that feeling and we know that we need another drink to get rid of it. And as I say, when you've learned that, it's learnt behaviour and what's learnt cannot be unlearned. When you learn that, you're constantly then having to fight a battle to resist having the next drink. Yeah, and I think uh, for many of us, the after-work drink, you know, is is always such a pleasure. But in fact, what it's doing is it's taking it taking off the withdrawal, isn't it? Yeah. We're in yeah. withdrawal all day long because of the night before. So when we have that first drink, it's um, that's what it's doing. It's just taking yeah. uh, taking the edge off, as everybody says. Exactly. Um, so we we have people in our community. Uh, that have been sober for maybe six months, eight months, and they're doing really, really well. And then they start having these thoughts, and these thoughts say things like, oh, I haven't drunk for ages, so I'm obviously not an alcoholic, so so maybe I can just have the odd glass of wine. And it always adds bad, ends badly, you know, because, uh, well, you know why. So yeah. <laughs> share with us why that is so impossible. So there's a few reasons. Going back to what I was talking about before. So when you have that drink, 
it will wear off, leaving an unpleasant feeling. And because you, for all that thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of alcoholic drinks you've had prior to that, your brain has learned that you want another alcoholic drink to relieve that feeling. So you can stop drinking for a week, a month, a year, 10 years, 50 years. But as soon as you have that drink, it will wear off, leaving an unpleasant feeling and your brain will interpret that feeling as, I want another drink. Okay, so it's unfortunately not possible. With addiction, there's a learning process. There's a take it and leave it phase for every drug. Now, because we drink alcohol, as I said, it takes a long time to become addicted to it. That take it or leave it phase can last. Some people, it lasts their entire lives. If you only ever have a drink or two once or twice a week, you will never probably cross that line and become addicted to it. But when you've crossed that line, you can never go back. So that is the decision people have to make when they start again. They don't go back as if they'd never drunk alcohol in the first place they go back to exactly where they left off and they might find that they can sustain it like you did for a week or two of you know if they really grit their teeth and try hard they might keep it going for a bit but it doesn't take long before they come off the rails completely now there's 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 a reason actually why people tend to start having those thoughts there's something called fading effect bias um, now, this is quite an interesting phenomenon. It's something that is it's universal. So it's not something just bespoke to, for example, people from Western societies or whatever. It's absolutely universal. So it impacts every human being, whatever culture. Um, and it's quite simple, but it's a tendency to look back on past events much more positively than they were when we experienced them. Um, and nobody really knows why humans have this. But, you know, the, the best thing people or best hypothesis people have come up with is that it just helps us to maintain a more positive outlook on life because we look back on things and we see our role in it a lot more positively than it actually was so generally it's a good thing but the problem is where it comes in with drinking or any addiction really because the further down the line you get the more inclined you are to look back and forget all the bad and just remember the good now with drinking what we're dealing with is a um, it's a foul tasting chemical substance, which is why we can't drink it neat. No one can drink 100% alcohol. It's absolutely vile. It makes your eyes water and you'd, you'd vomit if you tried to drink it. So we have to mix it with lots and lots of refined sugar. And when you're drinking, it does lots of things. It ruins your sleep. It increases your heart rate, which makes you feel tired and lacking in energy, which is why people, they don't like it. They don't like drinking regularly and they want to stop. So the reason there's so many people out there who want to stop drinking is because the life of a drinker is not pleasant. And that's why people want to cut down or quit in the first place. It's because they're not happy with what they're doing. So the reality of a drinker is, you know, you wake up at four in the morning, you can't sleep properly, your sleep's eternally ruined, you've got no energy, it's not particularly pleasant, it's expensive. Even if people don't understand it fully, they do appreciate that it's not good what they're doing to themselves. So if they manage to quit, the problem is after a week, a month, six months, whatever, they forget all of it. They forget the waking up in the middle of the night. They forget how much effort it took to get out of bed in the morning, how much they hated it. And they think about those 
maybe one or two experiences where they actually thought they really enjoyed the drink, like being on holiday or Christmas or whatever, or being with friends. Now, the silly thing is that is not typical of our lives of a drinker because most of our drinks aren't those perfect drinking situations anyway. Most of them are just, you know, the day to day having a drink after work slumped in front of the TV. But we forget all that and we start to look at only the good. So that's why actually, funny enough, over time, for, for slightly different reasons, but it, your sobriety can be eroded quite badly by the effects of fading effect bias. But of course, the problem is when we start drinking again, we don't go back to the fantasy, we go back to the reality. So that's why a lot of people, they find they're not happy when they're drinking, so they quit, but within a fairly short space of time, they're not happy having quit, so they start drinking again. So a lot of people, there's a tendency to either be doing one or the other whatever they're doing they're not quite happy with and they're always looking to make that change but i say to people if they can just you know carry on for a year i think once uh, i mean in my case once i i'd been alcohol free for a year i just felt so different and there were so many benefits and and i stopped thinking about going back but i, I did go um, my fading effect bias went something like Oh, I wasn't that bad. <laughs> and then I thought about it. I thought I was. <laughs> yeah, I always say to people, if if drinking, if the reality of drinking is what you think it is after you've stopped for a few months, you would never have stopped in the first place and nor would anyone else on the planet because you just sit there thinking it was this wonderful, perfect thing. Of course it wasn't. So in one of your books, I can't remember which one it was, uh, but you say that rather than torturing ourselves and saying, oh, do we have a problem with alcohol? We should ask ourselves if alcohol is taking away more than it adds to our lives. And you've got a nice analogy in the book where you, you talk about alcohol being a bit like a loan shark. Talk us through that one. It's great. So the the loan shark analogy, it, it's so so what most people, what they're trying to get from alcohol is to feel good, to feel relaxed or, you know, feel comfortable or whatever it might be. But as I've said, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So whenever you have an alcoholic drink, it wears off leading a corresponding feeling of anxiety. So the starting point for anything you know, just from a common sense perspective is, am I getting more out of it than I'm putting in? And that's true of anything, whether, you know, buying a car or a TV or whatever, you want to pay the right price, you have to be getting more out of it than you're putting in. Um, and I think a lot of people, historically, a lot of people, the, the question they would have when they were thinking about their own drinking is, am I alcoholic? And if the answer was yes, then it's quit. And if the answer's no, then carry on. But of course, that isn't really how it should work. It should be Am I actually getting more out of this? So if you think about it from just a very common sense perspective, if you're, say, for example, if you're feeling stressed from a day's work, you have an alcoholic drink and it is a sedative, so it takes the edge off it. Now, if you're a regular drinker, we've already covered how actually a large element of that anxiety will have been caused by the previous drinking anyway. But forget that for the moment. Let's assume you have an alcoholic drink and it does relieve some anxiety than you've had that you've had from that day's work so you've got an actual benefit there but the problem is when it wears off you have to pay it back so you have a corresponding feeling of anxiety so you're already paying it back now actually alcohol impacts your sleep as well which we can maybe talk about in a bit but um so you're ruining your day's sleep so when you come the next day you're more anxious and more tired, so more in need of an alcoholic drink. So you have to have that drink 
Um, but then, of course, it increases everything. And, and I liken it in the book to a loan shock. So you're almost dealing in feelings, you know, like you're borrowing £10, but then you're having to pay back 20 So then to pay back 20 you have to pay another 20 and then pay back 40 And it's like a compound interest. It just gets increasingly bad over time. So, yeah, I mean, for me, and I think for a lot of people... I would I would say to people, don't worry about is it do I have a problem? Is it this? Is it that? What is it? Whatever. Look at what it is. Look at what it's doing for you. But crucially, what it's not doing for you. Um, and just make a simple common sense decision. Do you want this to continue being part of your life or not? You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Absolutely. Because the the thing with an alcoholic is they have such a, a bad kind of image problem, don't they? Yeah. So we, we think of an alcoholic as a homeless man in the park, you mm-hmm. know, and we look at him and we go, oh, shame. And well, I'm not like that. No. <laughs> and, and then so you get people waiting, almost waiting for a rock bottom. And it's you don't have to go that far, do you? No, no, no. You have to. Get off that slippery slope. When you start worrying about it, Mm. I had a little voice in my head for for years and years saying, oh, I've got to do something about my drinking. And then I would have all these um, subconscious thoughts coming like, you know, well, how will I socialize and how will I relax? So you end up with this conflict and Mm. it's exhausting. It is. It's horrible, isn't it? Constantly there. Yeah. Um, What's your your take on this alcohol and alcoholism is a disease i mean i don't believe that at all because i've had cancer and i think that's a disease and I, yeah. I never looked upon my alcohol problem as a disease one of the problems i think with the with the disease idea is I, it, it's the suggestion that there's something wrong with the individual um and 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 that's kind of a tempting thing to do because as i say with alcohol because it takes a long time to become addicted to it it's very nice to be able to say, well, actually, the problem isn't with the alcohol. You've just got this small percentage of people who've got, I mean, historically, it was spiritual. It was a spiritual problem. But now people are moving towards, oh, no, it's actually it's genetic. But they're kind of looking for a way. It's victim blaming, really, um, because people like drinking. I mean, I think over here and in the US, it's something like between 80 and 90 percent of people drink. People don't want to hear that it's not good for them and they don't want to hear that it's physically addictive. Um, So it's an easier thing for people to believe that actually people with a problem have got something wrong with them, either spiritual or genetic or whatever that might be. The simple fact of the matter is there is no human being on the planet whose brain does not react to alcohol by becoming oversensitized. There's no human being on the planet who, if they continue to drink, will end up having to drink more and more as their brain becomes better and better at countering the sedating effects of the alcohol. Um, And then will eventually become addicted to it because as the alcohol wears off, it leaves an unpleasant feeling that needs another dose of the drug to relieve it. Anybody who drinks can become addicted. Now, people always say, oh, yeah, but I know lots of people who drink very mildly and, and that's all they've ever done. And I, I agree with that completely. That's correct. Because, you know, 
if you or I had only ever had one or two drinks <laughs> a couple of times, a, you know, a month, we'd never have got, it would never have got out, out of hand. There's so much to say about that. I mean, the simple fact of the matter is mostly we're encouraged to drink quite heavily anyway. Over here in the UK, it's what you do when you're young. You go out and you drink as much as you possibly can and get drunk. It's a very much a binge drinking culture. Um, so absolutely anyone can get addicted to it. Now, but people say, oh, you know, people with, you know, mental health issues or something like that are more prone to addiction and alcoholism and I agree completely with that as well because if you've got a mental health issue or some kind of underlying trauma it doesn't feel nice and you want to relieve it now there's lots and lots of ways you can manage those things and relieve them one of them one of those ways of doing that and do it is to drink alcohol because it is a sedative and as I say if you've got something you know you've got anxiety or you've got depression or you've got some PTSD or whatever it might be a sedative will take the edge off it now what's the only sedative out there that you can get without a prescription in virtually unlimited quantities bar only how much you've got to afford to spend on it it's alcohol so of course people with underlying issues are more likely to drink and drink more and develop alcohol problems but there is a significant number of people who don't have any such issues all they are are products of society um, and from whatever age they were taught when you go out you have a drink you know when you get home from work you have a drink when you have a nice meal in the evening you have a drink so they drink and they drink and they drink and they get addicted to it I don't see any way logically of getting around that fact I, I mean I know lots of people who have stopped drinking and uncovered underlying mental health issues but I know an awful lot of people who have stopped drinking and have been absolutely fine their problem was alcohol and when they've stopped drinking, they've their chemical balance balance in their brain has got back to normal, their sleep has gone back to normal, um, and they found they're actually happy, healthy human beings. It was the alcohol that was the problem. Yeah, that's that certainly happened in my case. I mean, I, I drank socially and, and reasonably happy, happily in my 20s and 30s. And it was only as I got older, really, I think I started self-medicating with it and, you know, having a drinking when I got home from work because I was stressed rather than drinking because I was in a bowl with my friends. Mm. And I think that's a bit of a warning sign, isn't it? So any tips for us on socialising sober? And that can be very scary. It can be. <clears throat> it, it's almost like a safety net thing, this. I don't know if anyone's seen, I think, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There's a bit in it where he has to cross this massive chasm and it looks like there's a sheer drop and he just has to step out. And it turns out there's, a, there's like a bridge there, but it's just cleverly camouflaged. And that's what I think it feels like when we go out for the first time, if you haven't socialised sober for like a couple of decades or whatever it is which a lot of us have you know it's, you always drink when you're socializing um, and it always feels like it's going to be a much bigger thing than it is I think one of the things I would mention which is I mean <laughs> as you probably tell I like the kind of the sciencey side of things but one of the reasons we like socializing is because our brain re releases endorphins so when we our brain releases endorphins we feel happy and euphoric now our brain does it on lots of different circumstances when we exercise um, when we have sex when we if we're hungry and we have a healthy meal and as humans when we're relaxed and socializing so what normally happens is in a, but of course even though we are designed to socialize and we get this endorphin rush when we socialize 
we're also products of society. So when we go out and we're meeting new people, we feel slightly nervous and slightly self-conscious. Now, the usual dynamic is you go out, you feel slightly nervous, slightly self-conscious, the conversation's a bit forced, but then you start to relax a bit and hopefully you hit on a conversation you find interesting. And as you sort of your brain works into the conversation, you forget that self-consciousness and you start to relax into the evening and you start to really enjoy yourself. Now, what happens when you introduce alcohol into the equation? It's a sedative. So you go out and you're slightly nervous, but you have a drink and it anaesthetizes that feeling of nervousness, which allows the endorphins to flow. So our experience of alcohol when we first, because a lot of people when they first start drinking, it's when they're socialising. Their experience of alcohol is it gives you this wonderful buzz. Now, it doesn't. It's just a sedative. The reason we associate this wonderful buzz with it is because when we're socialising, the alcohol anaesthetizes the nervousness, which allows the endorphins to flow. So what we're experiencing, that buzz we get, isn't actually an alcohol high, it's an endorphin high with alcohol mixed on top of it. Okay, so it's completely different. Now, when you've been out drinking alcohol for years and years and years, the dynamic can change slightly. So, you know, even if you have been socialising for years, you, you know, you may have had a situation where you're the designated driver or something, so you're not drinking that evening. Now, what happens is people will then go out and because they're not drinking, they're kind of not really enjoying themselves and they're just waiting for the next time they can go out and drink and actually enjoy themselves. Now, because they're not relaxed, they don't get that endorphin high. So it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They go out and they don't enjoy themselves when they're not drinking, but they do enjoy themselves when they are. Um, and I think the most important thing for me is to understand it will be hard the first few times you've done it because your brain's used to that sedative being introduced in order to release the endorphins. But what my advice is, is just go and try and relax into a conversation and you will find you start to get that feel-good feeling. It's, it is different to when you're drinking because there's not that intoxication effect of alcohol, but you will start to relax and enjoy yourself. The first time it might take hours because you're just not used to it and it might be very hard work. But over time, it gets easier and easier and easier. And what you end up doing is what you knew as a child, because when you see children going to children's parties, when they get there, they're very shy and retiring. And within 20 minutes, they're tearing the place to pieces um, as, as all those chemicals kick in. That's what we knew as children. But then when we started to drink, as I say, we, we lose, we lost the ability to be able to socialise. So it's I think that's my advice. Just stick with it. It gets better and better and you will, believe it or not, end up enjoying socialising as much as, if not more than when you were drinking. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that was my experience. But I, it took me months, to be honest. I had to keep forcing myself to go out. Mm. And I didn't enjoy myself no. most of the time. But every time <laughs> I went out and had a like a sober evening, I, I just saw it as another challenge that I'd, I'd passed, you know, so I kept going, kept going. And then I still remember one evening coming home and I thought, oh, I had such a nice evening, you know, and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And then I thought, well, I wasn't drinking. Yeah. It's like, you know, a breakthrough. You get there and eventually. I believe it's, yeah, I believe you're subconscious. So once you can have a, a good evening like that, it's, it's almost like your subconscious recognises that and thinks, oh, it is possible to yeah. socialise sober. And then next time you go, I mean, I still had to keep at it for a while. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I say to people now, I say, feel the awkward and do it anyway. Yeah, yeah that's exactly <laughs> so, it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Force yourself out and it'll get easier and easier. And yeah. then I think it's better than, than drinking and socialising. You know, you can remember everything the next day. You don't wake up at four o'clock in the no. morning. You <laughs> haven't got a hangover the next day. You don't have to rack your brains what, what you said and what you did. Mm. The, no, other, this, the this. other tip I think is very useful there is to almost treat yourself like a like a spy or a scientist watching a chemical reaction yes. because it's fascinating yeah. watching people because one of the big myths that we live our lives by is like people always say alcohol is borrowing happiness from tomorrow so you kind of end up with this idea that when you're drinking you're really really happy and then you're miserable the next day but actually it's not true at all if you watch drinkers for the first hour or so yes they're quite they get quite happily and bubbly but then after that the mood kind of tends to dip a bit um, and they become incredibly dull and irritating as they repeat themselves and stand too close. So it, it, it's an eye opener to go out for an evening sober and to actually watch people drinking. That alone can be a massive building block in your your wall of sobriety, if you like, just to see the effect on people and to start to realise actually as I say, they may enjoy the first hour or two, but after that, it can go downhill fairly rapidly. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Absolutely. I, I say to people, be an anthropologist. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you know, if you sit there and you observe and you can actually pick up the, the change in tone of people's mm. voices, and as you say, you get the same story again. So, and I think that helps us to to stay alcohol-free because we think, oh, do I really want to? <laughs> be like that anymore. Yeah. We have a very but it's ironic, isn't it? Because when we say, Oh, we we're not drinking anymore, people say, Oh well that's a bit boring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Less boring than repeating yourself twenty times and yeah. So a lot of our communities struggle with sleep in early sobriety and you know, some of them really suffer for, for weeks on end. Is there anything they can do? Yeah, so sleep, I think sleep is one of the, the biggest and most important things, certainly it was for me. Now, I, probably if I've got time, I would like to just talk briefly about sleep because a lot of people think that sleep is just, you know, you put your head down, you fall unconscious for a few hours and you jump up and you're good to go. But actually, sleep's a lot more complicated than that. You have to go through certain sleep cycles. Now, again, we're, we're, we're now talking about an area that we as human beings don't fully understand. But I think for the purposes of this and for the purposes of understanding drinking, what, all you really need to understand is one of the main differentiating features between these sleep cycles is how deeply unconscious you are. There's something called, there's a sleep cycle called deep sleep. So as you'd think, as you'd imagine, you're very, very deeply asleep. You know, it's very hard to wake you up. But then right at the other end of the scale, there's something called REM sleep. Now, REM sleep's really interesting. When they've um, done studies on people and attached sensors to their brain and monitor them in REM sleep, the brain lights up almost as if they're fully awake. Now, REM sleep is where we dream. Now, nobody really knows what dreaming's about. They've done tests on rats where they've um, starved them of REM sleep and it's killed them within a few weeks. So it's a really crucial part of sleep. Now, what happens when you drink alcohol for the first part of the night? 
because you've got this sedative, your brain can't get you into REM sleep. So you miss out on the REM sleep. The other point with sleep is it's usually about five hours from your last drink that that oversensitization really starts to kick in. So what people often find is they wake up five, and this is the reason people wake up at three, four in the morning, riddled with anxiety and unable to get back to sleep. It's that chemical imbalance. It's the equivalent of waking up and drinking like two jugs of really strong black coffee. So you've got no chance of getting back to sleep. Um, and I think that's that, that's massively important because people often think sleep, you know, alcohol helps me sleep. It doesn't. It absolutely ruins sleep. In a normal um a normal sleep cycle people should be getting six or seven um, cycles of REM sleep drinkers on average get two so it's massively reduced it hugely impacts their sort of their mental health and energy levels um, and in fact there's something called REM rebound which is absolutely fascinating now what happens they, they've done tests on people where they've whenever they, they've monitored them and whenever they start to go into REM sleep they wake them up so they're robbing them of REM sleep. Now, one of the problems with these studies is people leave them. They become so anxious and depressed and unhappy, they can't continue the study. But for the few who get through to the end, they then, when they're allowed to then get REM sleep, the, the brain goes on a glut of it. It's so important that they get massive and massive amounts of REM sleep as the brain gets back into it, which is why a lot of people, when they stop drinking, they find they get these weird dreams. It's literally the brain glutting on all this REM sleep so that's how alcohol completely ruins your sleep it, I quite often say to people imagine you sleep from 11 at night to 7 in the morning that's eight hours and that's you at your absolute best imagine if you set the alarm for four in the morning every night and got up and took a packet of caffeine tablets so you felt really anxious and you know jittery that's what you're doing when you drink alcohol it's absolutely astounding but one of the problems with it is for you or I who don't drink, when we get towards bedtime, our brain starts to close things down um, and it brings out its own kind of almost like sedating effects to kind of so, so that we then drift into a natural sleep. Now, the problem is when you're drinking regularly, your brain stops doing that because it just relies on the sedating effects of the alcohol. Um, and that's why people really can believe that alcohol helps them sleep. Because when they stop drinking, they can't sleep. Now, the reason for that is purely that your brain has got so used to not having to close things down at night time and just rely on the alcohol. It takes a few nights for it to realise, oh, there's no more alcohol and to have to go through that itself. Um, so that's what I would say to people. It is a complete myth. A alcohol absolutely demolishes your sleep. And yes, you will have a few days if you're drinking regularly where you find it incredibly difficult to sleep. You may not sleep at all because your brain just can't go through that process. But like anything else, it adapts. It adapted to the alcohol being introduced and it will just as quickly adapt when you remove it. It will take a few days. Um, there's uh, People will recommend all kinds of different things. I personally don't know of anything you can do to completely um, negate it. If you can do a bit of exercise, that will always help. Um, try to avoid caffeine or nicotine, two very strong stimulants later in the day. That will also help. What I would really say is just accept the fact you are going to have a few nights bad sleep. But then when you get back to sleeping properly, it will be proper sleep for the first time in however many years you've been drinking for. You will be getting the REM sleep, the light sleep, the deep sleep, all the sleep cycles you need. And that, I think, for me and many others, that's the 
great feeling of not drinking. It's when you wake up actually feeling refreshed and ready to jump up and face the day, which you just don't ever get when you're drinking. Yeah, it's it makes it so worth it, doesn't it? If it was only that benefit, it would be worth doing. Mm. Yeah, I say to people, read, you know, because I used to read till three o'clock in the morning. For It took lo- me longer than a few days. Oh, right. I'd say it took me, you know, a couple of months before okay. I could sleep decently. But um, I used to read till three o'clock in the morning. So I just say to people, uh, read the quitlet. Yeah, <laughs> keep going. Read, yeah. uh, read William's books. Yeah. Just educate yourself. Yeah. Use the time. Bore you to sleep, and yeah. Because, <laughs> because I always think, I say to people, if you treat this journey as a bit of a research project, because mm. the more we learn about alcohol, the less inclined we're going to feel to to put in our, our bodies. Mm. Because Absolutely. there's... Uh, I mean, it's an addictive drug and it's a poison, isn't it? Yeah, it's a absolutely. Toxin. Yeah. So talking of poisons, um, I was always on a diet for most of my life because when I, when I grew up, uh, Twiggy was our, our heroine. <laughs> <laughs> Are you t- you're probably too young to remember Bit young for that. Is, no, I know of her. Yeah, yeah. She was a, a very thin supermodel. Yeah. And we all wanted to look like her, of course. So I was always dieting, you know, in my in my 20s, I say that I lived on white wine and cigarettes, basically, mm. but uh, I still didn't look like Twiggy. But I carried on drinking and always dieting and not, not eating very much. But unsurprisingly, I never really lost uh, much weight. And I wanted to ask you, is that because the body is just so anxious to get rid of this toxin that it's not doing it, it's not burning up the food as calories? There's so many things to say on this. So so alcohol, obviously, I've mentioned before, as a a chemical substance, it tastes foul. So the only way we can drink it is to mix a lot of refined sugar with it. So whether you're drinking wine or any, you may think it's very good quality wine, there's still an awful lot of sugar in it. Um, So by its very nature, we're taking on a lot of extra calories when we consume it. Now, alcohol on its own, just as a chemical, is an um, energy source for human beings, but it's one the body can't store. So when you drink alcohol, it has to be burnt up, which is why when you drink, you actually get warm because your body's burning up. So you may think, oh, that's great because I'm not storing it as fat. But the problem is because there's an excess of energy, virtually anything you consume on top of it is stored as fat because your body is already dealing with too much energy that you can't get rid of. So that's one of the reasons. There's another reason it is a stimulant it's a um, appetite stimulant which may sound kind of counterintuitive when I've been talking about it being a depressant because surely a stimulant's a complete opposite to a depressant but actually when you understand how the body works a bit more it makes sense because when you eat food it has to go through something like 20 foot of digestive tract and a, a, a lot of it the muscles are actually squeezing it through the whole thing so it takes up a lot of energy when you eat food particularly heavy meals so your body tries to get you to eat when you're relaxing this is why a lot of people, when they have stressful jobs, they, they may skip breakfast and lunch and sort of end up eating loads and loads and loads in the evening. It's because when you're kind of nervous and uptight, you don't want to eat. And when you start to relax at the end of the day, your appetite opens up. Now, alcohol being a sedative opens up your appetite. Um, so that's another reason. So if you're drinking, it makes you hungrier. Another thing it does, alcohol increases our heart rate. When your heart rate increases, you want to sit down and rest. So the faster your heart's going, the more you want to sit down and rest. And that's why exercise is difficult for a lot of people. You know, as as you're getting out of breath and tired, you want to stop. It's just a fail-safe mechanism. Now, the problem is because alcohol accelerates your heart rate, you're constantly robbed of energy. 
So you've got kind of all these different factors coming into play where when you're drinking, you're finding exercise increasingly difficult and unpleasant. You're consuming lots more calories. It's making you want to eat more. Um, Another thing it does, it inhibits the absorption of certain key nutrients and minerals. So you can be eating in excess of these, but your body can't physically um, extract them because of the alcohol. So our bodies trigger feelings of hunger not just when we're low on energy like calories but when we're low on certain vitamins and minerals now because long-term heavy drinkers are constantly low on certain of these like b vitamins are the key ones they're they're almost constantly hungry a lot of the time um, because of the effect that it's stopping them actually absorbing these minerals so it is incredibly and inherently difficult to lose weight and drink at the same time because you've got no energy no inclination to exercise and you're consuming a lot more usually a lot more food and calories from the from the drinking yeah yeah because i uh, well i was one of them but there, there's many people that will do yoga and exercise and eat organic and gluten-free and then have a bottle of wine yeah. in the evening it's the it's, so. it's that one kind of blind spot for people isn't it yeah 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 yeah, I think we're, we're in denial. You know, we'll, we'll do anything, but don't take my wine yeah, away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, I finally stopped drinking far too late, uh, but I, I did stop drinking because I was getting blackouts. And my, my worst one was a walking, talking blackout, basically. I lost an entire afternoon. And that, that really frightened me because it wasn't just that I'd forgotten stuff, but I don't think my brain had made the memories in the first place. You know, is, is that how it works? Talk us through the science of, of a blackout. So nobody really knows about this because we're talking about memories. So a lot of this is theoretical rather than actual definitive statements. But um, so the alcohol is a particularly powerful intoxicating effect on a part of the brain called the limbic system limbic system is responsible for two things one is memory um, and the other is emotion regulating emotion so to stick with memory for the moment again we're not 100% sure how it works as human beings but the prevailing theory at the moment is you've got a short-term memory and a long-term memory so for example we're sat here now having this conversation and for the purposes of it we need to remember what we're talking about otherwise we can be completely incoherent but probably in like six months a year's time we'll have forgotten the detail of the conversation in fact probably less than that even um so so we have a a short-term memory and a long-term memory so everything goes into your short-term memory and then it's laid down via the limbic system into your long-term memory now when you're drinking too much or drinking at a certain level the limbic system is sufficiently negated it's anaesthetized so it struggles to lay down long-term memory but the interesting thing is it's not necessarily binging in one situation it just needs a long-term constant flow so you can end up with these very disturbing situations where you wake up and you've got no memory of what you did before the night before but it's not that you were rolling drunk in fact to other people you may appear to be completely sober now I went through a period of being a secret drinker and I woke up one day had no memory of what I'd 
done the night before my wife didn't even know I'd been drinking so it was really kind of disturbing for me because I, I didn't know what I'd done but all it was is because I'd been drinking over a long period and the levels had built up enough so that the limbic system wasn't doing what it ought to have done um, so there's that aspect the, the effect on emotion is probably just worth mentioning as well because it's it, it's really interesting emotions aren't what you think they are they're not something that's just triggered and then left in our brain emotions are triggered and then if they're not required the limbic system jumps in and calms it down sort of negates it now when the limbic system is anaesthetized it can't do that so take a normal situation you know you're making your morning cup of coffee and you break your, you drop your coffee all over the ground and smashes all over the floor and the coffee goes everywhere it's irritating and you lose your temper but the limbic system jumps in and calms it down because it's done there's nothing you can do about it now if that is anaesthetized, it can't do its job. It can't calm things down. So that loss of temper just escalates and escalates. So when people are drinking, they find it very hard to regulate their emotions. And it's why people, why, why there's such a huge correlation between drinking and violence and violent crime. It's because when you're drinking, something minor that ordinarily wouldn't bother you can sometimes... Um, it becomes completely you can't control it so it irritates you but it turns into a full-on fit of rage leading to violence simply because that part of your brain is is anesthetized it doesn't work properly every saturday afternoon we open up our tribe sober zoom cafe it's a safe space where our members can connect check in and just shoot the breeze about alcohol free living if you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one saturday just drop us an email at janet at tribesober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Wow, that's that's really frightening, isn't it? Mm. I mean, my my blackout, my, my friend said, but, but you were fine. Mm. You know, you weren't slurring your words. You weren't falling over. No. <laughs> Which made it even more odd. Very um, disconcerting, but, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Very. I mean, I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment about alcoholic blackouts and uh, the stories in there. I mean, there's people in jail that have murdered people in an alcoholic blackout and they don't have any memory of it. It's terrible, isn't it? You know, they're... Yeah. Okay, well, I think we've covered so many reasons why people should not drink alcohol. But uh, if someone's listening to this and they think, oh, gosh, yeah, I, sh I should really stop, but I, I just don't know how to get started. Uh, any advice for them? Um, I would say you need to believe that you because a lot of why we drink and a lot of why we don't want to drink is our beliefs about alcohol. So we believe it helps us sleep. It helps us relax. We believe we need it to socialise. We believe we need it to enjoy holidays and Christmas and all the rest of it. For me, I think those beliefs are all false. And I think you can prove to yourself they're false. Um, and certainly for me, and I know different things work for different people. For me, it was an exercise. You know, quite a lot of the time when people say, I want to quit drinking or smoking or whatever, what people say to them is, well, make a big list about all the reasons you want to quit. I say do it the other way around. Make a list of all the reasons why you want to continue doing it and work through those one by one and learn, you know, actually see them to be false because a lot of them, the vast majority of them are, are false. And when you do that, you come, you come up with a very different substance and one that's a lot easier to boot out of your life entirely. So certainly that's, that's what worked for me anyway, was doing it that way around.
Yeah, interesting. Because those beliefs, they come from conditioning, don't they? They come from marketing, you know, yeah, they, they come, come from, from societal pressure. Yeah, they, I think we, we, you know, like sleep as well. So, you know, you can end up drinking regularly. Well, you know, when I drink, I can get to sleep. And when I don't drink, I can't sleep. So therefore, alcohol, I sleep. But actually, when you delve into it a bit more, you learn that that's completely the opposite. Um, and socialising as well. I, well, I don't enjoy myself when I don't drink. and I do enjoy socialising when I do drink. But again, when you go through the mechanics of it, you learn that, well, that might be the case now, but you can reverse that pretty quickly. Yeah, and if people just take a decent break from alcohol, say a few months, you know, they'll they'll start to experience these things. Yes, and absolutely. Think, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have uh, a sixty-six day challenge because um, that's about how long it takes to change a habit. Mm. And lots of people sign up for this challenge and they do their 66 days. And at the end of it, many of them never go back to drinking. I think if you feel so good. Yeah, I think if you do it right and it's possible to do it wrong, but if you do it right, there's no contest between the two lives. There really is no contest. Well, William, that's that's just been fascinating. We could talk all evening, <laughs> could, but I'd better yeah. let, let you uh, <laughs> relax a little bit. Uh, just let, let's finish off by telling people how they can get your books. And you've got a website as well. Yeah, the, the website's probably the best place to start. So it's alcoholexplained.com. Um, and the first five chapters of the first book, Alcohol Explained, are on there. So if you're interested, go there and read those. Um, and then if you want to read more, then the books are available on Amazon and there's links on the website. So there you heard me talking to William Porter. Let's pick out a few highlights from that conversation. Just like some of my previous guests, William stopped drinking when he became curious about alcohol dependency and started delving into the science and discovering just how harmful it is. He explained to me how we end up with anxiety after drinking. Anxiety is the term for a hangover with a good dose of anxiety mixed in, caused by chemical changes in our brain, which becomes oversensitized after a drinking session. He explained that if you drink a bottle of wine every evening, you'll develop a tolerance, so that when you have your first glass of wine, your brain will be registering that the rest of the bottle will be following soon. And that's why it's so hard for us to stop at one. And so many of us have to say we just don't have an off switch. He talked about cravings, which can be intense, but actually it's a matter of fantasy. You have the thought of a drink and then you start fantasizing about how it would be, how it would look, how it would taste... And that's why quitting altogether and not even entertaining these thoughts is so much easier. He explained that it can take quite a few years to become dependent, but the problem starts when you learn, either consciously or subconsciously, you learn that after a drink you feel a low, and then you need another drink to make you feel better. And by the time you've got to that stage, it becomes very difficult to moderate because every drink is giving you a desire for the next one. And once we've realised that another drink will quell the anxiety caused by the previous drink, then we will struggle to moderate. William explained the fascinating concept of FAB, fading effect bias. And that tends to happen when we're a few months sober and we start thinking back fondly to those good old drinking days. We actually forget how bad we were and how things went horribly wrong sometimes. We just focused on the good times instead. 
Now, fab is really dangerous because that's when we start having those thoughts like, oh, well, I wasn't that bad. Maybe I could just have one glass now and again. Because we feel that we've now proved we're not an alcoholic, perhaps. But the trouble with restarting due to fab is that you'll just go back to the previous problematic drinking levels that you were at before. Maybe you can manage to moderate for two or three weeks, but then inevitably you will get back to over-drinking. William suggested that rather than asking ourselves, are we an alcoholic, we should consider whether alcohol is taking away more than it is giving to us. And he came up with a great analogy which described alcohol as a bit of a loan shark. We discussed sober socialising, which we agreed is tough at first, but William reminded me that feeling awkward is normal at first. Just think of children's parties where the kids are hiding in their mom's dresses at the beginning and then tearing round the room screaming a couple of hours later. We decided it was a matter of feeling the awkward and doing it anyway. And socialising also becomes easier if we get curious and observe those drinkers. Be an anthropologist. Watch how animated the drinkers are during their first hour of drinking. And then they start talking too loud, standing too close and of course repeating those stories. Another bonus of being an anthropologist is that we realise that we don't actually want to be like this, so it can be a valuable building block in the wall of our sobriety. We talked about sleep. William's a bit of an expert on this topic and his books cover it in great detail, but he explained about how alcohol damages the quality of our sleep. It reduces seven cycles of our valuable REM sleep down to just about two. He talked about REM rebound, which is fascinating and explains all those drinking dreams that we get in early sobriety. It's such a myth that alcohol helps you sleep, because in fact it's such poor quality sleep. When you quit drinking, you may well struggle to get to sleep at first, but eventually you will sleep and you'll sleep so much better and you'll wake up feeling great, which rarely happens in your drinking days. William's advice to anyone struggling to get started was to write a list of all the reasons they want to keep drinking. And then when you analyse those, you'll find that they're actually false beliefs and you can reverse them. We cover mindset and how you can deal with these kind of limiting beliefs in our workshops and during our coaching sessions. So just hop on to tribesober.com for some more information. The easiest and gentlest way to make a start on changing your drinking habits is to become sober curious. Learn as much as you can. The more you learn about the toxin that is alcohol, the less you will want to drink it. Read William's books. They're called Alcohol Explained and Alcohol Explained 2. And they're available from his website, alcoholexplained.com. And joining Tribe Sober is also a great way to start your sober curious journey. Just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. For an affordable monthly subscription, you can learn how to ditch the drink and thrive in your alcohol-free life. So that's it from me. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit. 
and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.